0: And it's, it's great to know that he knows our name. It's a little bit scary to know he knows our every thought, is it not? <laughs> hey, um, this morning we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, and I'd invite you if you have your Bible with you or your iPad or phone with you, you can open there or swipe there. And we are going to be looking at the third letter in our series of these postcards to the edge, uh, letters that Jesus sent through the Apostle John to the churches in the book of Revelation. I've, um, I- I've had a love for coffee ever since my days in college, and I actually uh, worked for Starbucks for um, a while while I was in college, But but this year my... You could call it obsession or fondness, depending on how judgmental you want to be, has, has grown a little bit. I've, um, I've, I've crossed over into what's known as craft coffee now, which basically just means I'm a snob, and I'm proud of it, and I'm proud of it. Uh, there was one year during the Lenten season that I gave up coffee for Lent, and I've never felt so far away from Jesus in my life, and I thought, never again. And so um, I started to get into craft coffee, and that meant that um, I was, like, into pour over, and I have this, like, whole ritual in the morning, and, and I was a few months into it, and I started to notice, like, my, my coffee tastes a little bit different from day to day, and what was going on was I didn't know exactly how many beans to put in um, my coffee and to ha- what the bean-to-water mixture should be. Hashtag the struggle is real, okay? Okay. Um, don't tell me we don't have persecution here in the United... Okay, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. And so I'm like, I'm lamenting to Kelly and she's looking... at My wife Kelly and she's looking at me like I'm growing a third eye, you know? Like she just Keurigs it and she's done in one minute. But me, this is a whole process of worship and um, it's, it's just a whole process. And so I said, you know what I think I'm going to do? I've had a number of friends tell me that I should, I should buy a scale so I can weigh my coffee beans and I can weigh my water, and so I can make sure I've got the right combination of water and coffee. And she anointed me with oil and laid hands on me and tried to drive the demon out, and it just wouldn't go. And so I hopped on Amazon, and two days later, my scale was there in the mail, and every morning I use it, my wife makes fun of me to the glory of God. But I'll tell you what, I've got the right ratio now of beans to water praise be to God you're not as excited about that as I am but you get it thank you you know I think I was thinking about that as a follower of Jesus we live yeah wow that's quite the quite the bridge as a follower of Jesus we live in in a world where it can be hard to know how much of the world is infiltrating us and how much of the world we're infiltrating can't it it can be hard to know in, a, in a, just a, a myriad of different thoughts and different ideas how much of it's seeping in and, and how, how much of it's being kept out. And sometimes the Bible is really helpful. It's really clear on the, the, this is how to live and to follow the way of Jesus. But sometimes it's a little bit more murky, isn't it? Like if we, if we try to align ourselves and our lives with the way of Jesus and the heart of Jesus, which is what it means to be a Disciple. We can wrestle, even with the scriptures, we can wrestle with, Lord, how much should I reflect my culture? And if our answer is not at all, well, I think we're being disingenuous. And I also think we're being inconsistent in what the scriptures actually teach. Let me give you an example. In Acts chapter 15, they have this thing called the Jerusalem Council. And they decide a number of things that, that followers of Jesus must do, and circumcision wasn't one of them, and all the men who they were writing to like, did a little jig when they got that letter back. It was like, praise be to God, that's awesome. But one of the things they wrote back and said was, don't eat food sacrificed to idols. And so the church went, okay, great. But then if you open to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and you read through that chapter, um, Paul writes to the church at Corinth and goes, listen, an idol isn't anything at all. Don't worry about eating food sacrificed to idols. If it doesn't make somebody else to stumble, it's just meat. And we go, well, how do we do this dance? What does it look like to, as Jesus said, to be in the world, but not of the world? What does it look like to live true to the gospel in a cultural setting that we are genuinely in? And that's an okay thing. There's, there's beautiful things about our culture that as followers of Christ, we should look at and go, that's awesome. That's great. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. And then there's things that go, that doesn't align with our DNA as followers of the way of Jesus. Look up at me for just a second. Have you ever wrestled with how do we decide which is which? Have you ever wrestled with, man, is there too much water in this? Is, there, is, is a little bit watered down? Or am I living true to the way of Jesus? If you've ever struggled with that, and my guess is, hey, if you're a follower of Christ here today, you've struggled with that on some level. If you're not a follower of Christ, let me challenge you to try to think through ways that you've struggled with the same thing, because we all have a set of ideals. We have a set of beliefs. We have a set of standards. And what happens is sometimes those get watered down, whether we follow Jesus or not. And so you can relate to what Jesus writes to the church at Pergamum about. Revelation chapter 2, let me read you this letter, the first part of this letter, and we're going to jump in to this church that had maybe a little bit too much water in their pour-over coffee. Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12, here's what Jesus says to the churches. It says, unto the angel or the messenger of the church at Pergamum, write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Time out. Okay, that's his intro, and if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know that Jesus customizes his introduction to each church to the setting that they're in so that they go, oh, we can relate to this Jesus. Keep that in mind, keep that in mind. Pergamum was um, 15 miles inland, and it was just north of the first two letters that we've already uh, talked about. Uh, uh, The letter to Ephesus and Smyrna, and now we have Pergamum. And you can sort of see the the imagery, the layout of, we're taking this letter from one place to the next. There's sort of a, a circuit or a track that these are going on. Pergamum was known as the capital of the Roman Empire in Asia Minor. It had been for roughly 400 years. It was a powerful city. There was a, a hill in the back of the city that um, o- from almost anywhere in the city you could see. It was between 800 and 1,000 feet tall. On top of that hill, there was an altar to the god Zeus, Zeus. <laughs> And you could often see a flame rising as people would put incense into this altar, and they would burn it, and they would bow, and they would worship Zeus, or they would worship Caesar, or they would worship another god by the name of, what's his name, Asclepius, was the god of healing. But Pergamum was known as a pluralistic city, many gods. Many gods, as as were all of these back in the day. It was also known. You're standing. If you're li- right here, you'd be standing in the ruins of a library, a library that housed roughly two hundred thousand scrolls. That was a lot of books back in that day. Pergamum was a culturally relevant, quote unquote, city. It had a 10,000-seat amphitheater where they would have plays and um, they would gather together. But it was also, the most impressive temple it had was the Temple to Caesar, where people would come and bow, and they would uh, participate in what was called the Imperial Cult, which was the worship of um, the Roman Emperor. This was very common in Pergamum. But Pergamum, being the capital of the Roman Empire in Asia Minor, had a right that was absent from many of the other cities we've studied thus far. They were able to exact capital punishment on behalf of the Roman Empire. No other city in this region could do that. And often, the way that that happened was by way of the sword. So, you have this city... This city that's built on pluralism, Rome saying, what's one more God? Just worship one more God. Um, A city that's uh, in many ways revolving around Caesar worship. It has this other God, Asclepius, which was the god, god or goddess of healing. And he was personified by snakes. And so in that temple, in Pergamum, there would be a number of snakes on the ground. And if you're afraid of snakes, just... Okay, so there'd be a number of snakes on the ground, and the way that you were healed by this God was you would go down, and you would lie on the floor of the temple, and all of the snakes would slither over you. (laughs) Okay. So it's no coincidence that because this god was worshipped in Pergamum, their coin reflected it, and you can still see that crest of the serpent on the Royal Army Medical Corps' crest today. That's why. Yeah. This is Pergamum. So it's no coincidence that this is the city where capital punishment was allowed on behalf of the Roman Empire. If you went against Rome, that's what you got. And it's no coincidence that Jesus opens his letter as the one who has the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And he goes, hey, you want to you talk about swords? You want to you talk about power? You want to talk about empire you want to talk about influence he says i have i have power and i have influence but it's not the kind of sword that kills it's the kind of sword that pierces to the heart and redeems let's talk about two kinds of power jesus says and that's his intro And that's this church. Um, Just sort of anecdotally, if you're interested, because Pergamum had that big hill in the back, it was um, an easily defensible city. And So back in the days of Alexander and beyond, it was a city that housed 9,000 talents of gold, which is roughly $11.5 billion worth of gold today. It was sort of the Fort Knox of the early world. That's who Jesus is writing to. And here's what he says. And You'll remember if you've been here over the last few weeks that typically the way that Jesus writes these letters is he begins with something really, really good that the church is doing. He transitions into something that he's calling them to correct. And then he moves on to an instruction he's giving specifically to the church that he's writing to. It's the same pattern that he follows here in this passage. Revelation chapter 2, verse 13, here's what he says. He says, I know where you dwell. Literally, this word dwell um, would mean that you have your permanent home in this place. You're You're not a sojourner. You're not an alien. You're not just passing through. This is where you live. And it's where you live, quote unquote, permanently. Where, what? Say it with me. Satan's throne is Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, look up at me for just a moment. Do you think it's any coincidence that Rome has its seat of power of Asia Minor in Pergamum And Jesus says, this is where Satan has his throne. Not a trick question. Absolutely not. No coincidence. And see... One of the things we do when we read the scriptures is we we typically bring an image and we bring baggage to the text that is often um, what we've heard, stories we've heard. And so, I don't know, I, when I read Satan, I imagine a demonic figure with pointy ears who's red, pointy tail, and has a pitchfork in his hand. Anybody with me? And Jesus goes, well, actually, Satan or the Satan, Satan is a lot more like the Roman Empire than he is like a demon with a pitchfork. Don't let anybody ever tell you that the Bible doesn't confront and deal with things like systematic injustice or racism. Or empires that put people down and take a, and abuse those who are on the lowest rungs of their society, Jesus has very, very strong words for this empire, so strong that he says they 're satan there 's this power there 's this demonic power behind the rise of this empire, and they are destroying the lives of people there 's a spiritual and a, a spiritual power and authority. Behind corrupt and abusive empires. That's what Jesus says. But then he says something else that's fascinating. You dwell there. You live in the lion's den, church at Pergamum. And, like, what I would want to read is, and I'm coming to get you. Help is on the way. But that's not what he says. He says, you dwell there, and you've been faithful. Good for you. You've been faithful even to the point of death. Here's what I want us to just lean into today. It's a difficult truth in the scriptures, but this is what Jesus is teaching us, is that God designed us to influence the darkness, not to escape the uncomfortable. God designed us to influence the darkness, to impact evil, not to escape the uncomfortable. I don't know about you, but escape sounds a lot better and easier some days. Is anybody with me? Like, if we could just pull the ripcord and, and get out of the furnace, that, that's, that's typically the choice that we would make. I love the way that Eugene Peterson, the great pastor and author, puts it. He says that the church, if you're, if you're a follower of Christ here today, you're, you're part of that. The church is designed to be the colony of heaven in the midst of the empire. The people of God, surrounded by evil and pain and abuse and coercion and corruption and loss. I mean, think about it. This is God's plan from the very beginning. This is the way that he operates all throughout the scriptures. That Abram, in Genesis chapter 12, go back and read it this week. Genesis chapter 12, Abram is called out of his world, quote unquote, to be a voice of hope and blessing back into his world. But Abraham's only a blessing if he stands distinct, if he's different. He's not a blessing if he just looks exactly like all the people that are worshiping a myriad of different gods and idolatry in his society. He's a blessing if he has a voice back in. And God's design for you and I is that his church would be a redemptive community, standing distinct from, but passionate for his world different but passionate for see it's, it's easy to be different and against isn't it we're different and we're loud and we will tell you exactly how we're different and how you're wrong or it's easy to be for right to just be a part of just going along with it whatever more water in that coffee right But to be distinct from and passionately for, that's the calling of the church. And I think um, the Apostle Peter says it really, really well when he says this, you church, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his, God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into light. You're different so that you could speak back into and be a voice of passionate change and life and love and goodness and wholeness. William Barclay, the great commentator, writes this, the person who's not prepared to be different need not start the Christian way at all. Oh, man, not a lot of tattoos of that one these days, (laughs) right? I mean, that's something we go, oh, man, like we know that the scriptures say that, but that can be hard to live sometimes, can't it? Well, it was hard for the church at Pergamum too. Verse 14, if you're following along. Verse 14. And Jesus says this, but I have a few things against you. Now just quick time out. He says, you're standing up to Satan, which seems like quite the accomplishment, but I've got a few things against you. See, we can can survive some of the massive onslaughts to our faith, but it's those little things that start to creep in, isn't it? You've, you've, you've stood up to Satan, but there's some other areas that you're starting to drift. Just a little bit more water. Just a little bit more water. Here's what he says. You have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to stumble, uh, uh, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So you also have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. We'll stop there for a second. There's this wordplay going on between this word Balaam, which means to lord over in Hebrew, and the Nicolaitans, which means lorded over. So most scholars think he's talking about the same group of people. And he uses this, this story from the Old Testament about Balaam to illustrate his point. Now, If you want to read more about Balaam, I'd encourage you this week, go read Numbers chapter 25 through 29. But let me give you the Cliff Notes version of that story right now, because it's really important to the context of what Jesus is writing to the church about. Um, Balaam, or Balaam, was um, a prophet, and he was a prophet for hire. And so Balak was the king of Midian, and he hired him to cast a bad curse over the people of God, over the Israelites. And um, Balaam said back to Balak, listen, I can only prophesy what God says. I can only, if God gives a blessing, I can give it. If God gives a curse, I can give it, but I can't come up with anything on my own. Balak says, great, do your work. He stands up and he prophesies this beautiful blessing over the people of Israel. And Balak's like, hey, like, I'm paying you to curse these people, not to bless them. How about we go for round two? And he says, okay but I can only do what God wants me to do. And he does the exact same thing again. Beautiful blessing over the people of God. Blocks like, I want my money back, okay? Um, and what Balaam says to him is, you're making this way too difficult. You don't need to curse the people of God. Here's what you need to do. Get the most beautiful women you have and go have them do a little dance in front of the men of Israel. And they will fall in love with them and they will want to marry them. And eventually, they will be worshiping your gods. You'll win them over through their affection for your women. And eventually, they will be destroyed because of their idolatry. And he goes, wow, that's not that bad of an idea. And so that's what Balak does. And you know what? It works. It works. It's a tale as old as time, though, really. Really? I mean, you look at the King Solomon's trajectory in his life, it's the very thing that gets him off as well. The Nicolaitans in um, this day and this time were sort of a group that was reflective or similar to Balaam. They had a similar tactic. Their tactic was, hey, Christians, it's no big deal if you go to the temple and visit a temple prostitute, it's no big deal if you... Bow the knee to Caesar. What's one God in addition to Yahweh, the true God? It's, it's no big deal. And they stood up to Satan. And they were starting to be destroyed by the Nicolaitans. Here's what the Nicolaitans argued. Listen, God's more concerned about your spiritual life than he is about your physical body. Do whatever you want with your physical body as long as you worship God. It's, in the ancient world, it was this heresy, this, this untruth called dualism. Do whatever you want with your body as long as you continue to worship and your spirit is healthy. And what Christians have believed and what Christians have always believed is that we are integrated beings. We are holistic people. We can't be um, completely unhealthy and going against the stream of what our convictions say on a physical level and healthy spiritually. That cannot happen. That cannot be. Followers of Jesus have a far more complex, connected, and unified understanding of what it means to be human. It all matters. Our bodies matter. Our sexuality matters. Our thoughts matter. Matter matters. Christians. Uh, We've been accused of being, and I think rightfully so, the most materialistic religion in the world. We say it matters. It all matters. And so, if we begin with this, Jesus calls us to live sometimes in the lion's den. He calls us to influence the darkness, not to escape the uncomfortable. We have to recognize that the next sort of domino to drop is that potential for influence brings opportunity for compromise. Potential for influence... By definition, because we want to influence the darkness, we want to influence evil, we want to love in the face of people pushing it back against us, has the greatest opportunity for compromise. Think about it. When you're in an argument with your spouse, that's what we call it as followers of Jesus, it's not, it's not a fight, it's a disagreement, okay? In that moment, there's an opportunity either for influence or for compromise. Like, continue to love even when it's difficult. Um, When you're faced with an opportunity at work to maybe cut a few corners, get ahead, and everybody else is doing it, you have in that moment the opportunity either to influence people towards integrity, towards good, towards honesty, or to compromise. It's both, right? And the more opportunities we have to influence, the greater the pressure will be to compromise. Right? This is is what we see happening in this world. And notice the two things that are compromised. You're eating food sacrificed to idols, or you're going in the way of idolatry, and you're practicing sexual immorality. Now, let's lay this over the teachings of Jesus. Because Jesus taught that there's two greatest commands. In fact, if you want to keep every other command, just keep these two, and by definition, the others will fall underneath it. Love God and love others. And the interesting part about what happened in the church of Pergamum is their compromise, they're sort of taking a little bit of water to um, what God had intended them to live, and just saying, we'll just have a little bit of our culture in here, and, and we'll just add a little bit of this, is they went contrary to the two greatest commands Jesus had given them. Love God, and they started to practice idolatry. Love others, And they started to use other people. And that's the opposite of love. It's not typically um, adverse hatred. It's typically I'm going to use you in order to get what I really want, which is what sexual immorality is because God designed us to live lives of love, to live lives of fidelity, to live lives of commitment and covenant. And when we go against that, we go against the very DNA of the way that God has designed us to live. So if a person wrongs me, I have the opportunity either for influence or for compromise. Will I, will I forgive in the way of Jesus and stay true and stay, have an integrity of my soul to say this is the way that I want to live or, or will I retaliate? when I get into an argument with my spouse, is it influences or it compromises? I mean, we could go through a ton of different examples. And I think what Jesus is saying is there's more than one way for Satan to defeat you. It can either be an overt attack, like a roaring lion looking for someone to destroy, or maybe a little bit more like a Trojan horse that just sneaks in and becomes a part of your life. And eventually you realize that there's an enemy in it, and you've cozied up to it, and your convictions and your ideals and your beliefs eventually are starting to get pushed more and more and more to the peripheral of who you are. I was reading about this interesting quote-unquote study that was done by the TV show Candid Camera. And they did this study, this was back a number of decades ago, where they had um, uh, three actors and what they would do is they would um, wait for somebody to get into an elevator and then they would open it on the next floor as it was going up and all three of the actors would get in and they would get in and just face against the back door. And the person you could watch in the video is sort of like, you know, what in the world is going on here? So they had one more person, the next level up, who would get in, and that person, an actor as well, would get in and would look at the back door also. You know, every single person that found themselves in that elevator eventually did what? Yeah, sure. And I don't know about you, but when Jesus talks about freeing our lives from anger, sometimes it's easier to just turn around and go with the flow, isn't it? Man, that's just a part of living. Or when Jesus talks about forgiving our enemies, can't it just be way easier to compromise? Or when Jesus talks about a sexual ethic that's built around fidelity, that's built around honor, that's built around covenant, isn't it easier to just go with the way that it seems like everything else is going? Isn't it easier to just turn around? See, I think the truth of the matter is, friends, that the greatest danger in the Christian life is not that we'd lose our faith, but that we'd synchronize it with everything going on in our culture. We just Jesus plus it. and Jesus plus whatever sort of makes me feel good. And, and if you're... Wrestling with that today, let me, let me try to get into the DNA of compromise, the DNA of how we, whether we're followers of Christ or not, how we start to live contrary to our ideals because nobody, no man who cheats on his wife ever thinks, you know what, that's what I had planned when I stood at the altar. No one, no one who gets caught stealing money from their company ever thought that's where they'd get to or where they'd be. It always, always carries this burden of, I never thought life would be like that. And maybe, just maybe, God will use this scripture as a word to you today to say, You've turned around, but it's not too late. Here's the way it works. Here's the way it works. Oh, I saw this Babylon Bee article that I thought just beautifully summarized what we're talking about today. And it says this, um, the title and the Babylon Bee is a parody, it's a satire Christian blog. And here's what they wrote, man bravely abandons unpopular Christian belief to affirm extremely popular cultural belief. And I thought, well, yeah, yeah, I think in many ways we're guilty, right? Here's what it looks like, typically. Here's how it begins. We minimize. We go, well, it's not, it's really not that big of a deal or for a follower of Christ, it's, well God's, God, the, well, God's way is one way, but it may not be the only way. We, we minimize. Here's the next thing that happens. We theorize. And typically what it looks like is God's greatest goal is my ultimate happiness. So th- then, the equation in our mind is: X will make me happy. Therefore, God must want X for me. Therefore, I should do it. Even if I can't find anything in the scriptures that would back up my perspective, I, I'm 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 theorizing. Here's another way that it sometimes looks. There's exceptions to every rule and I'm the exception, right? Here's here's finally, we rationalize. And sometimes even rationalize after the fact. It's I blew it, so who cares? No one else in my company does anything ethically anyway, so why should I? Eh, No big deal, it's just a a little glance, it's just a little click on that website, it's just a little bit, no, no big deal. And eventually where this minimize, theorize, rationalize leads to, and this is why Jesus is so passionate about writing to his church going, you guys, wake up, wake up. You're letting everything infiltrate and you're not influencing, wake up. Wait, wake up. You're walking down, and this is Jesus' heart. He's going, you're walking down a road that eventually is going to lead to your death. And I don't want that for you, he says. I've, I've designed you for better. I've designed you for more. And so then he has this beautiful word. It may be one of the most beautiful words in all of the scriptures. Therefore, repent. Repent. Yeah, you've turned around. You, you, you're just you're along with everybody else now. But but repent means literally to change your mind or to turn around. <laughs> to turn around. It's not too late, regardless of how far you've walked down that path. It's not too late. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them. And these are the people who are um, in with the Nicolaitans. With the sword of my mouth, I will convict of sin. I will point towards righteousness. I will call home. Come on, you guys. Come on. And then he gives this great promise. So that's the command, right? So we've walked through Jesus' commendation, Jesus' condemnation, Jesus' instruction, repent, and now there's this promise that comes and oh my goodness, it's awesome. He who has an ear, so if you're here this morning and you're going, man, maybe that's me. Maybe there's like a disproportionate amount of of the world and faith in my life. He's going, okay, okay, great, great, great. Listen up. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, or to the one who overcomes, or to the one who's victorious. Let's stop there. Because in this instance, what does it mean to conquer? Well, it means to stay true to who you are as a follower of Christ. It means to stay true to the two greatest commands, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love others as yourself, to not bow the knee to another God, and to not use people instead of loving people. That's what it means. And Jesus goes, to the one who turns, to the one who repents, to the one who comes back, and, and is therefore because they did that victorious. Here's what he's saying. Here's what he's saying is that this devoted commitment guards against destructive compromise. The best thing you can do, if you're like, man, I'm, I'm worried about whether or not I'm walking down that path of, of adding just a little bit more water into my coffee, and I'm, I'm wor- worried about that, Jesus would say, well, here's the antidote. Here's what to do. You don't need to try to dissect every little thing. Just bow and worship. Just come to my throne. Just submit your life. Just just surrender. That's what victory looks like. I read this story about this 12-year-old girl who was in class, and she was eating chicken nuggets in her class. And this boy looked at her and said, hey, give me one of those. And she said, no way. She loved her some nuggets. <laughs> and the boy followed her down to the subway, took a gun out, put it to her head, and said, give me some of those nuggets. And She slapped the gun away and said, absolutely not. <laughs> and I'm like, holy nuggets, Batman, right? I mean, <laughs> and I thought, man, what would it look like as a follower of Jesus to be that convinced of my convictions. And don't let a 12-year-old girl over nuggets outdo you. Here's what Jesus says. If, as you conquer, as you live the devoted life, here's what's going to happen. I will give some of the hidden manna like you could read this as, like, as sustenance, as life, as bread, as goodness, as Jesus himself. So as you live a devoted life, you are going to be filled up with life, abundant sustenance, spiritual sustenance to continue to keep you going along the way. Jesus said this in John chapter four, verse 34, he said this, he said, my food, the thing that fills me up, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. And see, here's what we see in this passage and others all throughout the scriptures is that obedience reveals unseen sustenance. And so maybe maybe the reason, maybe the reason that you're struggling in your life with Jesus is because you're resisting the way of Jesus. You're resisting obedience to him. You're saying just a little more water, that's fine, no big deal. And Jesus says, oh, man, if you'd just let me, I would fill you up time and time and time again, but I will not fill somebody who's living contrary to my way. I can't do it. I can't give you gasoline in your car if you're going to drive it off the cliff. I can't do it. And here's the second thing he says. And I will give him a white stone, with a new name written on it, a stone that no one knows except for the one who receives it. It's really interesting. Back in the first century, they used white stones for a number of things. Um, One of them was that if you were on a, a jury, you would take a white stone if you wanted to vote for somebody to be innocent, and there would be a jar that you would drop it in, and you'd say, that's my vote. I'm, I'm, I'm casting my vote for innocence. The other is that um, they would use this as um, an entrance into like um, uh, an Olympic game. So you'd get a white stone as almost a ticket. See this imagery Jesus is painting? It's brilliant. It's brilliant. You're innocent, You're in. (laughs) But then he says also that there's a a new name written on it. What's fascinating about that is that these little stones, maybe a little bit bigger than this one, but these stones are things that people back in the ancient world would carry around in their pocket. And they'd write the name of, of a god on them. It was sort of like a charm, like a way to say, may this god protect me. And they'd write the name of the God on the stone. And Jesus reverses that a little bit and says, instead of writing my name on that stone, I'm going to write your name on that stone. As a reminder of who you really are. Church at Pergamum. Quit running contrary to the way of love, to the way of Jesus, to the way of fidelity, to the way of honesty, to the way of integrity. Quit running against that. Quit compromising. And instead, instead, may your fidelity, may your um, trust in Jesus expose a new identity. A new name. Like Abram being moved to Abraham. Like Jacob being moved to Israel. Like... Paul, Saul being moved to Paul that this would remind us who we really are and I don't know where you're at with Jesus today and I don't know maybe if you've been living in this place of just adding a little bit more water but I do know this, his invitation this morning is come home you've turned around, come home that, that invitation is always open if you are still breathing, if you're still longing. He's, so, he's like, come home, come home. And what I'm convinced of today is that in all the things that we've said, and all the, the ways that we've unpacked the scriptures, the most powerful thing you can take away from this is maybe just maybe hearing a whisper of what that name is over your life today. The name Pergamum means married. And this new name is this picture of commitment. It's this picture of covenant. And I've got two bowls up here, and I've got two bowls on the side of the rooms over there. And what I'd like you to do, we're going to sing one last song, and here's what your invitation to practice is this week. I've just got one. I'm going to invite you to come and get a white rock. And during this song, I'm just going to ask that you would prayerfully consider, and you can, if you want, you can kneel up on these stairs if you'd like, or you can just kneel right at your seat, or you can stand and sing or sit and sing, but here's what I'm going to ask. Would you ask that Jesus just speak a word over your soul today of who you really are? Maybe it's a word beloved. Maybe it's the word pure. Maybe, maybe you're feeling weak today and his word over you is strong or warrior. But would you ask as we sing, would you ask, Jesus, what's my, what's my name? And then help me live with integrity in line with who you say I am. We live in the place of influence, friends, all around us which means that there's temptation for compromise. So let's remind ourselves who God is and who we are. That we might live all the more for him, for our joy and for the glory of his name. Let's pray and then as we sing the song, I'd invite you to either come up here and grab a rock or off to the side. Jesus, we wanna be the kind of people who live true to who you say we are. We want to love you and we want to love others. We don't want to bow to other things and use other people. Lord, we want to live with integrity to the deepest parts of our being. So Lord, remind us this morning what you say about us. And may what you say about us drive how we live in your world. In Jesus' name.